0: Hello everybody and welcome to our latest episode of the Zoological Society of London's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Boom. i I'm a researcher here at ZSL's Institute of Zoology and generally happier to stare at a microphone than a computer, so thanks for saving me. Today I have a right trait for you. I hope you all brought your wellies because today we're going fishing. Now I know fishing, ZSL, is that such a wise idea. Well, we're only really fishing in a proverbial sense not for compliments. Today we're casting our proverbial nets for solutions. Solutions to the problem of cetacean bycatch in fisheries. Now I very much cut my fishing career short when I once turned down an invitation to learn fly fishing, so I will be of very little help. But with me to cast the net for solutions more effectively is our very own cetacean strandings investigator Rob DeVille, who is also the project manager of the, wait for it, UK cetacean strandings investigation programme, or short CSIP. Right, so, Rob, before we go any further, cetacean stranding investigation, CSI, mm. is a coincidence, or are you actually CSI UK, just, you know, with better one-liners?
1: It's a happy coincidence, but it doesn't mean we get to have CSI all over our branded gear, yes.
0: Do you have sunglasses?
1: I don't yet, but that's a good idea. I might look into that.
0: You need to kind of meaningful put them <laughs> on or take them off. What precisely is bycatch?
1: So bycatch, it can be defined as the incidental entanglement of non-target species during fishing. So what that means is you accidentally catch something that you're not trying to target during your fishing.
0: And so here in this podcast we talk about cetacean bycatch, so that's anything that's like a dolphin and whale?
1: Yes, cetaceans are whales, dolphins and porpoises. But in terms of bycatch, you can pretty much catch anything. Fishing gear could catch pinniped seals, they can catch the wrong kind of fish... They could also catch seabirds, so bycatch covers a lot of potential cases, but we're talking about cetaceans.
0: So, where in the world is bycatch a major issue, or is it a global problem all the way through our waters?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that pretty much anywhere where you have fishing, you will have some form of bycatch. But I guess the question would be, bycatch is very much a welfare issue. We can see that. And the post-mortems that we carry out, that it's painful, slow, and protracted death for those individual animals. The question about conservation impacts, because that's what we do here at ZSL, we look at conservation impacts, that's slightly harder to answer. But if you look at two particular examples in the world at the moment, the vaquita is rapidly going extinct as we speak, so the vaquita is a porpoise species in the Gulf of Mexico. There are now anywhere between 10 to 20 left, and that's it. And they 10 are to 20, that's Individuals, it. yeah. So I've just come back from a meeting of the European Cetacean Society Conference. We we spoke about this. We had a Vaquita session. Some very depressed-looking scientists from the US and Mexico talk about significant efforts to conserve the last many individuals which have and are unfortunately failing. So we'll look at the probable extinction of yet another cetacean species after the Baiji a few years ago within my lifetime. And that's a thoroughly depressing bit of news. And then beyond that, we also have the ongoing problems with North Atlantic right whale with a significant number of entanglement cases uh, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, increasing cases only last year.
0: So, how do you diagnose that something died as a consequence of bycatch? I mean, I suppose if you find a dolphin with mm. the net still entangled around it on a beach, I would probably hazard a guess as well that something might have gone wrong but how do you actually yeah. diagnose it in the lab?
1: Diagnosis by catch can be difficult and I would actually say that uh, I'm not a vet I am an ologist to make that very clear so I'm a cytologist or a stranding scientist so I'm not able to give a cause of death legally in the UK.
0: Stranding Scientologist. That'll
1: do. Scientologist no, no 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 no. Stranding okay. cytologist. So yeah, let's, let's make that very clear no. But if you put two pathologists in a room together with a dead dolphin, A, it would be illegal, but B, they come up with different answers because there's a degree of subjectivity to this. In the UK, and that's where I work, we diagnose bycatch as animals that may or may not have uh, fisheries interaction externally, net marks or gaff marks or cut off fins and flukes. They generally tend to be fat and healthy. They generally tend to been recently feeding in and around those nets. And there's sometimes evidence of traumatic impacts. And you also, this is quite important, you eliminate other significant underlying factors. So that's kind of our criteria for diagnosing bycatch. Fat, healthy animals, recently feeding, evidence of trauma, no other significant
0: factors. Right, so we have just the person here to tell us quite how much of a problem cetacean bycatch is in UK Waters. A second member of our cetacean strandings team. In fact, he has probably dissected more cetaceans than any other person I know. It's Paul Jepsen. Hi, Paul. So to get the record straight between the two of you, in a game of SIP top trumps, which one of you would win in the number of cetacean dissections carried out?
1: That would be Paul. So I think you've done 7 or 800 know about yeah. half that number
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. seven or eight hundred this is this is how scientists work we compare our notes with whatever we do who's done more it's excellent it's just in case you wanted to have an alternative funding stream sip top trumps you know there might, there might be something in it <laughs> yeah, yeah. so how big a problem is cetacean bycatch in the uk
2: well in the uk it's certainly a big animal welfare issue um, in many ways if just one whale or dolphin or porpoise strands in a um, dies in a fishing net, then that's one too many. Of course, it is an, an unavoidable consequence of fishing activity, as fishing has got increasingly industrialised. bigger boats, more powerful engines fish finding sonars and all the technology that comes around it so actually a more powerful tool for fishermen to catch more fish but unfortunately as their fishing effort increases the number of animals that they can catch in their net also increases that said there's still a question as to how much of a conservation issue bycatch is and and for some species it's probably more of a welfare issue than a conservation issue, but there is a lot of uncertainty and, and that's partly due to the fact that these animals, as particularly whales and dolphins and porpoises, they're very difficult to study in the wild and count them really precisely. The same with how many dying fish in nets, it's something that's very difficult for science to quantify completely, so there's always areas of uncertainty. but. If we move away from the UK and look at the global picture, then I think most marine mammal scientists around the world think that bycatch is probably the number one conservation threat globally. So I mean,
1: I guess if we were to go back to the UK in terms of numbers, because that's what we do in terms of examination of strandings, so over 27 years we've carried out necropsies on maybe, or examinations on maybe 4,000 cetacean strandings, and probably about 715 have been due to bycatch or entanglement, so that makes it the number one cause of mortality, man-made mor- mortality for us in the UK. And
0: Which species are the ones that are mostly implied in UK waters in bycatch?
2: Harbour porpoises and common dolphins, yeah, they've been uh, the two species that we see the most commonly stranded in the UK and both those species have had the highest p- percentage of, of bycatch cases as well in, in most years of the study.
1: I can throw an extra question in, if I may. If you were to describe the pathology of bycatch in terms of how that might relate to welfare-driven issues, can you tell us more about that? If a dolphin gets caught
2: in a fishing net, what happens to it?
0: I was just about to ask the same thing. I would have not been as coherent, though, so well done.
2: (laughs) No, I mean, the welfare issue is increasingly important for the bycatch problem. There's lots of different types of bycatch, you know, we have the small gill nets that catch the harbour porpoises, we have the trawl nets that catch the common dolphins, and we also have other types of ruts for lobster pots and things like that that catch the large whales like the right whales and humpbacks. So actually different types of fishing gear catch different species. When a dolphin gets caught in a fishing net it's basically usually held in the water until it, it actually will suffer some injuries because it will get caught in the net and it's the bits that that stick out the fins, the tail flukes that get cut. Um, and so you get lacerations and cuts as well to the outside of the body, but we also see in most of the bycatch cases severe bruising internally as well. So it is a quite a, a an, an acutely traumatic process. And then the thing after a period of time of the animal will struggle in the neck um, and then eventually it will run out of oxygen and then it will just die of asphyxia. and that's how most of the animals die unfortunately. So you know it is a welfare issue probably in every case that that dies of bycatch
0: so for a dolphin how long would that process generally take
2: well for uh, harbour porpoise they can breath hold dive limit of four and a half minutes maybe a bit longer for common dolphin probably longer we don't know what the aerobic dive limit is for a lot of the dolphin species but they can hold their breath for uh, sort of 20 minutes or more half an hour maybe uh, in some species and and then the really deep diving species like the Cuvier's beak whale and the sperm whales, they can also occasionally get by caught and they can hold their breath literally for hours. So for them, you know, it's potentially an even bigger welfare issue because they can just hold their breath so long, their struggle, you yeah. know, will go on much longer. I mean, something that really
1: surprised me when we started doing this work together, gosh, 20 years ago, when <laughs> really explained to me actually the mechanics of how uh, cetaceans. Drown, I was quite surprised. So maybe you can tell listeners, you know, about the process of asphyxiation and the depressing subject to know. But they don't wet drown like humans do, do they?
2: No, no, they don't. No, um, I mean, the classical drowning for like humans, if you fall into water, is that when we're held underwater after a period of struggle, that we'll we'll have a reflex. Our brain will tell us we need to breathe in, even though we're underwater. And and so, actually, what very often um, human drowning will be aspiration of water into the lungs. What happens with the dolphins and the porpoises, though, is that their breathing is very much under conscious control. Their brain controls it very well. And they, when they know they're underwater, they they won't actually take a reflex to breathe. And if they're deep, their lungs will be compressed completely by the pressure of the water anyway. And they they couldn't actually open their lungs to take in any water or air. So actually what happens is that they just will progressively die of a lack of oxygen. And um, one of the other things uh, is quite specific about bycatch as well is the fact that in the early days, people used to think, oh, well, maybe the fishing nets will pick up the really sick animals. You know, the sick animals will be very vulnerable to bycatch, but actually it's the opposite. What we see with, with most bycatch cases is actually they're relatively healthy animals, they're in good nutritive condition, they don't have a lot of disease, um, and actually they have a normal appetite and they're just going for food normally, feeding normally when they get entangled, and that's why we often see very recently ingested fish, sometimes completely undigested fish in the stomach and esophagus. Uh, and we see that very, very commonly in in older bycatch cases, and that's consistent with them actually being very healthy and feeding normally when at the point where, unfortunately, they get untangled and then they die. I
0: suppose that's why it's also a massive conservation issue because you're essentially taking out healthy individuals that you really kind of want to keep in the population to breed. I mean, any individual yeah, lost is yeah. obviously is sad, mm.
2: but... So that's yeah, it's part of why... It's such a big conservation issue, not so so much in in the UK, but around the world where we we have big threats to species like the right whales, the vaquita in the Gulf of Mexico, where there's been just a bycatch problem for years and there's hardly any vaquita left now unfortunately. I suppose one other thing we would say is the kind of increasing industrialisation of fishing. There's been some papers quite recently in the top scientific journals. Uh, in science and nature you know now actually the amount of ocean that's actually subjected to industrial fishing by surface area is about 53% now and and it's increasing probably all the time and and actually occupies a surface area about four times the whole of agriculture the, the the amount of the seas that are actually fished industrially occupies an area of the, of the planet that's about four times of all of agriculture on land so that's the problem that we're dealing with you know I and mean, it's why it's such a global Problem.
0: Cool. Right, we now have our next guest with us to talk more about the welfare issues of bycatch. Sarah Dolman is Senior Policy Manager at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Now, whale and dolphin conservation sounds pretty descriptive already, but what precisely is the organisation doing? WDC is a conservation and a welfare organisation, so we're interested
3: in the protection of dolphins, porpoises and whales, and the wider marine environment.
1: So Paul's already spoken about asphyxiation during entanglement, but what else happens to whales and dolphins when they become entangled in fishing gear?
3: So there are different kinds of fishing gear, and often the impacts depend on the type of gear. Entanglement in nets might have one impact, and particularly on the smaller animals, on the dolphins and porpoises, and then entanglement in ropes and lines can have a different impact. And the smaller animals tend not to survive. They'll often drown in the nets or they'll asphyxiate in the nets. Uh, With the larger whales and entanglement in ropes and lines, then the bigger whales, particularly humpback whales or right whales, for example, can pick up the gear or part of the gear and carry it with them. So the welfare impacts associated with those Injuries tend to last for much longer, and in some of the biggest types of whales, they can last for months or even for years if they're carrying the gear around.
1: So it's a really significant welfare problem Then these chronic entanglement cases?
3: It really is a significant welfare problem. Some of the injuries that animals suffer can be lacerations to their skin, they can become infected. In the worst cases, amputations might happen, and they can lose part of a fluke, or in some cases, even a tail fluke. And of course, if they're debilitated in any way, it's very difficult for them to move around effectively, which might mean that they're not feeding well, um, which may then lead to starvation. So really terrible impacts, in the worst cases, for individuals.
0: So with it being such a massive welfare issue, as we've just heard, it can be a process of months of a whale carrying around this fishing gear. What are the policies in place at present to help alleviate the issue?
3: Well, I suppose that the regulations that are in place to understand bycatch and to reduce it are, um, are very focused on reducing the number of deaths or actually understanding the number of deaths. And, and those are quite simplistic. They're about monitoring using onboard observers and then devices which are called pingers on nets, and those pingers make a noise, and the idea is that they deter the animals from the nets. So they're really about reducing the numbers of deaths. They're not thinking really about the welfare of individual animals and the value of the Stranding's project is that the data that's collected from the, from the dead individuals, whether they come on board the boat or whether they wash ashore, is that we can understand a bit more about some of those impacts. So if individuals lose teeth or if they have other injuries because of the nets or the rope, then we can start to understand what the impacts of those might be on the individuals.
1: I'd like to drill into this a little bit more about the entanglement issue because, I mean, from my perspective, I think it would be the most significant welfare problem that we deal with in terms of cetacean impacts. Mm-hmm. I was at a welfare workshop in South Africa where lots of scientists talked about the same thing. We always had the same outcome. Chronic whale entanglement's really significant welfare problem. So is there a particular species that you'd like to talk about that's been really impacted on a conservation basis as well as a welfare basis by entanglements?
3: So the North Atlantic right whale is probably... The whale population that is struggling the most because they are critically endangered. There's less than 500 of them left, only about 100 of those are breeding females and yet the number of entanglements and ship strikes that that population faces is really jeopardising its future to the extent that the snow crab fishery off the east of the northwest Atlantic coast, it's Certification has been suspended because last year at least 18 whales died because of entanglements uh, and ship strikes. A number of those in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where that snow cap fishery is based. So that certification, the extent on that population, is such that in that case the certification has meant that the Canadian government will now put very robust measures in place to try and prevent those entanglements from happening.
1: And it's doubly disappointing, isn't it, because 30 years ago that population had been hammered by whaling and then thanks to conservation efforts the numbers have begun to increase and yet now we're in a situation where we're in a reverse, where the population's crashing or declining.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And every whale that dies, I think people draw a breath. Mm. Um, Yeah, the gravity of the situation is such. So yeah, as you say, on the whole, large whale populations of are increasing now since whaling days, but this is not the case, certainly here with the North Atlantic right whale.
0: I suppose we do have kind of more ethical ways at looking at consumption of what we buy. If there was a particularly ethical consumer in terms of fish purchasing, is there anything that people can look out for that it helps them make a decision about these issues?
3: It's very difficult to do that, and that's partly because... First of all, there are a range of different kinds of certifications. So there's a labelling called Dolphin Safe, which you might expect to mean that there is no bycatch, but that's not necessarily the case. There's also another certification called the Marine Stewardship Certification, and that's probably the biggest recognised label globally. But that's really about understanding the fish stocks. So they do consider bycatch, but it's not considered... As robustly as we would like, and it's not considered consistently in each of the fisheries. So, the safest way to eat seafood that has a minimal bycatch impact is really to eat pole and lime, so fish that's individually caught one by one. Last year, WDC ran a campaign to ask the UK Fisheries Minister, George Eustace, to put in place a bycatch strategy. We're in a very privileged position in the UK because we have this long-term strandings data that's very important and very helpful. It gives us insight to the welfare impacts. We also have a a bycatch programme that's run by St Andrews University and the combination of those two things mean that we've got a long-term data set and we really understand the bycatch problem that we have in UK waters. Although we have all of this information, the numbers are stagnating and they're not being reduced and we can do much more to bring the the numbers of deaths of, of whales and dolphins and porpoises in UK waters down and George Eustace has committed to putting the strategy in place. So that's a really positive thing, and WDC are looking forward to working with CSIP, St Andrews, and fishermen, importantly, working together as stakeholders to make sure that we can put the measures in place to start
0: reducing bycatch. Okay, so we best look out for that in the future to see the positive impact this will hopefully bring. Superb.
1: So this is my colleague, Dr Simon Northridge from the Sea Mammal Research Unit and the University of St Andrews. Simon's been working on bycatch for many, many years.
4: More years than I care to remember.
1: And more years than I, so he's much more informed than I am, but just talk about your work at SMRU and what it
4: entails. I guess the main part of my work at SMRU is running a bycatch monitoring scheme, which is funded by DEFRA and the Scottish Government. So we place people on board fishing boats to monitor and record uh, fishing activities and the sorts of things that come up in in fishing nets. So we're interested in in all protected species, trying to get an overview of of, um, where there may be areas of particularly high bycatch and where it's uh, relatively low. And then we also um, assist industry if they figure they've got a problem with bycatch rates that may be um, excessive, we try and help them to find ways of reducing the bycatch.
0: So Rob mentioned in a previous meeting when we kind of planned this podcast, he mentioned to me that you're also known as Mr. Bycatch. <laughs> is that okay? Can we use that as an official, official name? Rob's nodding.
1: Maybe Dr. Bycatch. I don't know, oh, Dr. <laughs> bycatch.
0: Mr. fine. Mr. Professor Dr. Bycatch. Um, so from your work at the Sea Mammal Research Unit, what are the kind of headline results? Where is the problem of bycatch most prevalent?
4: Most prevalent. Well, probably. In the southwest of England, within the UK at least, because that's where most of the sorts of nets that probably have the highest rates of bycatch are focused. So typically we're talking about the Celtic Shelf and inshore coastal waters of the south coast of England.
1: So Simon, perhaps you can tell us then a bit more about how you might want to try or can try and mitigate against the impacts of bycatch, maybe historically and what we're looking at at the moment.
4: Yeah, that's a good question, and it's not an easy question to answer. I mean, there's one method which is is widely proposed, used, and tested around the world, which is the use of pingers, uh, or acoustic deterrent devices, as they're more technically known. Small, uh, normally electronic devices that make a noise and are supposed to scare animals away from the net. They do work. They work certainly for some species very well, but not for all species. Uh, Some species just um, ignore them, or may even be annoyed by them. But the real problem with them is that they're not cheap and trying to roll them out into um, less developed countries or even into fisheries with very low um, value within places like Europe would be very difficult simply because of the expense and the fact that people have to recharge them or put new batteries in them. And that's a difficult thing to expect to be done on a large scale. So they're not an ideal solution, but that's certainly the main thing that people have been looking at. Other things that have been done Fishery closures, unfortunately, where um, entire fisheries have been closed down, that is not good news for uh, the the fishing communities involved, uh, but sometimes it's the only thing that can be done if you want to uh, protect a species that's in danger of extinction. Sometimes there are also, um, particularly in in the US, strategies for uh, limiting the amount of fishing in certain areas at certain times when animals are, are most frequently found. With the aim of, of limiting the total total bycatch through the year, so there's a range of different approaches, but we don't really have a, a magic bullet there's nothing simple or straightforward that can be done. Um, all uh, the measures that we've tested and developed so far have got their drawbacks.
1: So it's like having a toolbox, if you like, that you can draw on that no particular tool is going to solve everything in any given area.
4: It would be nice if we had an extensive toolbox. We've got a toolbox with just about two or three tools in it. That's the problem. Um, (laughs) And I think we need to put a lot more effort into figuring out how to make that toolbox a little bit more complete. Mm.
0: So what would you like to see happen next in the UK to improve cetacean welfare. What do you think are the next steps or the next tools that we need or need to look into?
4: Yeah, I think that's it. I think we need to be looking for developing new tools. Um, Personally, I think we need to have a much better understanding of how the animals are interacting with the nets in the first place, how and why they're getting caught. It's not just a random event, I don't think. Um, There's clearly some interaction involved. And then figure out a way of either preventing them from coming into close contact with the nets, or if they do come into close contact with nets, uh, a way of of minimising the risk of them actually getting themselves caught. And I don't know how to do that yet, but I think if we spend a bit more time and effort looking at how they actually behave around nets, that may give us some clues.
0: Is there already some research going on um, looking into these factors? Well, yeah,
4: we're developing tools at the moment to try and do exactly that, trying to use the the fact that the the animal we're mainly interested in, the harbour porpoise, makes ultrasonic clicks virtually the whole time and one of the uh, benefits of that is you can use um, underwater acoustics to then track it or provide uh, locations and and study the way in which it moves underwater and we've done that already um, in particular places where uh, people are trying to deploy uh, underwater turbines and now the challenge is we're trying to uh, deploy the same technology in, in a fishing situation which is much more difficult but I'm sure we'll be able to do it eventually.
0: Cool. Wow, Rob, this has been um, quite a discussion, and I have to say definitely one of the more heavy podcasts that we've recorded so far. Um, a lot to think about, including on a more light-hearted note, whether, you know, a cetacean strandings investigator top trumps would ever catch on, just, you know, again, thinking of some of the alternative funding streams that we could bring in. In all seriousness, though, cetacean bycatch is clearly a massive issue in the UK and also worldwide. Is there any hope that as a society, we will ever be able to solve this immensely complex issue.
1: So I guess the, the problem with working in many areas of conservation science, and particularly in the environment, is it's perceived as such a big problem that they're insurmountable, right? So we can't do anything to make a change. But I guess if we look at one specific example from our line of work about the whaling moratorium that was brought into effect in 1986 by the International Whaling Commission, signed into effect in the UK, in Brighton, in my hometown, which is quite gratifying. Now, since that moratorium was put into place, some of those wild populations have begun to recover, and there's more of them out there than there used to be. And that shows that actually if you do affect a policy change driven by the public, public support for this change, there can be a good outcome, and we can make a positive difference in terms of the conservation, the long-term conservation state of these species. So things do look bleak. There's no getting past that, but if we do decide to do something collectively, we can make
0: a difference. And I suppose getting uh, public support behind that is absolutely vital as well.
1: Yeah, and I think from my perspective, looking at this, you know, bycatch is is a difficult problem. It's hard to deal with that starting point, but actually, when you get people lined up together, industry, scientists, NGOs, and the public, you can all be pointing right in the same direction, and you can affect change.
0: Cool, excellent. And on that positive and hopeful note, thank you very much for listening and we'll hope you tune in again for our next episode of the ZSL Wild Science podcast.